everyone. Nice to see you. Uh, a lot of your faces I'm uh, familiar with. Some of you I know well, some of you not so well, but I recognize you from being here before or elsewhere. And um, I'm really I'm glad to be here, glad to have the chance to hang out together, really, uh, this weekend. You know, hang out in a way that's exploratory, in a way that's intimate, in a way that's reflective, uh, and to see what can be added unto us, you know, in that kind of hanging out uh, intimately and exploratorily that we call Dharma practice. So also just to welcome those of you who are not here in the building with us, but are here with us through the live stream, and uh, just to appreciate your participation and just that sense of a kind of inclusive sangha where we are sitting together in a room together, but actually where the kind of the connections of that, just like the connections in our life, spread out much more widely. And we're here in a certain solidarity with and because of the support of our families and loved ones and partners and colleagues, etc. And in that same sense, also sitting together in solidarity with countless other uh, people now and in the past who've kind of looked at these themes of life together. And having the live stream happen actually is a kind of it's a way to have that sense of this sort of solidarity of sitting with other beings. So those of us in the room, solidarity of sitting with those who are watching and participating in the stream. And those of you who are at home uh, watching and practicing and participating, sense of sitting in solidarity with those of us who are here. So, I was uh, just looking last night at the theme I gave. Of course, one gives the themes for these things a long time in advance, a year or so in advance. So then I just looked up the retreat on the New York uh, Insight website to see what am I teaching this weekend. (laughs) And it sounds interesting. Pointing in the description to the way in which uh, these liberating teachings and practices, the way in which teachings and practices point to, and even that word, to liberation or awakening, or, don't like this word at all, enlightenment. But I would I'd rather stick with freeness, liberation, awakening as kind of um, descriptors for the, the kind of the beautiful vision of human life and the beautiful vision of any transformational practice. So first of all, I just want to invite you to reflect a bit. What, what are the associations that you have with those words? And how do they relate to your own practice? So just, and you actually you might call it, you might speak out any associations you have with, with those few words. So liberation, awakening, freeness. Enlightenment. How, how front and center are they in your own practice? And I'm not saying that they should or be necessarily, but I think it's curious to see, well, what's my motivation for practicing? What am I really interested in? It Maybe that's changed over time. I remember what I, the, the ideas I had about meditation or about Buddhism when I first came across it. And what I thought I was hoping to get from my practice were very, very different 
than what they were then five years later, for example, and what they are now. So that's what I'm interested in, right? Awakening, liberation. And without putting the capital, that's why I don't like the word enlightenment. It's the munt part that I have a trouble with. Enlightenment, more than any of the other words, seems to posit some thing, a munt, a state, some sort of final destination. And then everything else, I'm sort of struggling along, flailing about, doing this thing called Dharma practice here and hoping that one day they'll, this great munt will arrive. <laughs> Rather, your words are awakening, because awakening doesn't need to be far away. There's all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways we can wake up more to what's happening here. We can wake up more to some of our habits and tendencies. We can wake up to um, ways in which we've found ourselves contracted or fearful. We can wake up to the way life is in all kinds of different ways. So even the word awakening, which is much closer, right, actually etymologically to the word the Buddha was using. Even the word awakening offers something a little bit more immediate, a way to engage with liberation practices right here in the experience I'm having, rather than trying to get to this mysterious realm called enlightenment. So, what about you? What, what do you, anything, what do you have to say about liberation, freeness, awakening, and, and the kind of intersection of those sort of grand terms and your own practice? The word, even those words, Maybe uh, just, just wait for the mic. If you can, and if you want to just say your first name when you speak, would be great. Sure, Jonathan. Jonathan. Uh, yeah, even those words are too um, too much for me. Like mm-hmm. instead of, uh, a, I would rather say waking up. Waking up. Yeah, yeah. and I'd rather say, um, you know, f- my freedom is the freedom is my association, or my association of freedom is, you know moving beyond my past and my thinking to, you know, to a potential that isn't there without it. So, mm-hmm. potential to live. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I think, certainly in my own practice, it's been really helpful to me, for me to actually find a vocabulary and a way of articulating Dharma that actually fits my experience. So, it's interesting, for example, I spoke about awakening, and you say, oh, no, that's not quite right for me. Waking up. But to, to have that central, oh, I'm waking up in my practice. Because despite the fact that that's what this is all about, even, even though we might be quite committed, it, our practice can become a kind of a habit, a routine. I'm sort of committed. I, I sit in the morning for 30 minutes or whatever it might be. And in theory, it's, I know it's about waking up or whatever, but how it usually it becomes almost a chore even. Like, oh, you know, I didn't do my meditation this morning. <coughs> so just finding the, the freshness of that, ah, waking up, remembering. I mean, it's what, what a great thing to have kind of some tools and practices and teachings that support us in waking up. Yeah, thank you.
So anyone else? Yeah. Um, Caroline. Caroline. Um, I find them to be uh, powerful words in the sense of, to me, of awakening and liberation, just realizing that every single moment I, myself, have the power in terms of making choices. Every single moment that choices are not made for me, you know, that I direct myself. And, um, and it's great, you know, even when, you know, I, sometimes I wonder, oh, this must be the old habit. <laughs> and it's just recognizing that as what it is. Mm-hmm. And um, it's wonderful, the sense of agency. Okay, good. So something about moment-by-moment moment possibility, of rather than just being carried along by the currents of my life and the habits of my life and the reactive tendency of my life, I can actually have this thing called practice that actually enables me to see what's happening, to see where I am, to see what's moving me, and to actually intervene, to engage moment-by-moment moment sense of possibility. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the sense of curiosity, experimentation. You know, done this 10,000 times. Why don't I check this out this other way? Yeah. And um, so it makes it fun. Okay. Good. Good. I like to hear about practice as fun. <laughs> In the Asian traditions, where, uh, where, of course, all of this comes from, there's often the spirit of a kind of joy and delight, the good fortune to be practicing, the delight of having teachings and practices, the delight of going to see teachers, the delight. And the sense of uh, fun is much more alive. You go to a monastery, it's a fun place often, right, actually. Especially on the big community days where you know, lay people are there and there's the offering of food and the offering of robes and the spirit of uh, the, you know, the delight and joy. And sometimes in, the, in Europe and here in the U.S., I don't feel the spirit of fun and joy so much. There can often be a kind of a seriousness or even an oppressiveness or heaviness sometimes and to a lot of grim-faced meditators. So, good. Hi, yeah. uh, Caitlin. And building off of Caroline's comment of that curiosity, just being aware not only of uh, how we make our choices and how... Um, knowing what the process is so that we can get into that stream and change that direction, but also then being aware of other people's states and emotions and being able to step back and see what's happening interpersonally um, to alter that stream as well. Okay. Yeah, so that possibility in the, the way seeing, the insight, clarity of vision actually opens uh, a freeing possibility to do things differently, to know things differently, to respond to things differently. And to make the right choices for you or for the moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Hi, I'm Judith. And so the, the liberation part speaks to me, but the word that comes with it is spaciousness, mm-hmm. a sense of, of moment-to-moment, sensing that sometimes, it's not always, sometimes I have more room more of a less, I'm less, 
I've moved from feeling driven or compelled or compu in compulsion to respond and, or to, to keep going through, and there's just this space that seems to open up. So it's a, it's a tactile, mm -hmm. physical element yeah. around it of just, uh, you know, there's room, and then all the opportunities for choice and other things come up. But just that, that first sense of, of not being con tight and constrained and opening up. Right. Yeah, so the sense of, you know, it's easy to think, to imagine that those terms, awakening, liberation, we speak about meditation so much, of course, as the kind of heart of practice, as if it's a mental process. We might speak about it as mind training, for example. And that's true. There is a certain training of the mind. And yet, actually, to recognize that it's a very visceral process, that awakening isn't some inner light, necessarily, but that the very essence of letting go, of non-clinging, is a, a, a physical relaxation. Most of us are used to a level of physical relaxation that's really quite gross, right? We know, oh, I'm feeling tense, oh, I relax a bit. But we find in, in practice that there's, well, actually, it seems to me an infinite degree to which we can experience relaxation, physical relaxation, emotional relaxation. Uh, cognitive relaxation the relaxation of actually needing to be somebody at all the relaxation of having to hold together a familiar mind and a familiar relationship with others and objects and the, this kind of progressive infinite capacity to relax One of my teachers said to me once, a relaxed body is a free body. And it seemed a little simplistic to me the first time I heard it. And yet that's certainly been my experience ongoingly. That, uh, that insight is a process of oh, relaxing some view or some posturing or some way of relating that's been held tightly. Very helpful, I think, to really, and it can be a defining feature of our practice, a sense of just attending to whatever ways in which there's some holding, some bracing, some fixating, some contracting, and just, just seeing what possibility is there, even if only a little bit sometimes, to soften that, to relax. Okay, anyone else? One more, and then we'll move on. Yes. Hi, I'm Becky. And... Um... It sounds like, like maybe another word, another way of experiencing it is I've been noticing recently that I'm, when I'm doing washing dishes, like some kind of everyday task, um, I'm able to ask for quiet and get it. You're able to ask for? Ask for quiet. All those voices. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. They're willing to be quiet now mm. more often than they used to be. Beautiful. So just establishing a certain intimacy with what you're doing that's not filtered by the narration of it or the distraction from it or the memory of something else or the restless uh, anticipation of something different. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So, that's the wish, the intention. 
hope for a liberating uh, weekend together. And to employ some of those other synonyms, a, uh, a weekend of waking up to wherever we and however we find ourselves. A weekend of this moment-by-moment engagement. A, a weekend of finding ways to meet and respond in different ways to the ordinary stuff of our lives. A moment of being uh, simple with whatever our activities are. And how interesting that the ways all of you have spoken are ways that come back to that moment-by-moment possibility. Relaxing around what's happening. Noticing our experience. There are things that you mentioned that are very close to home, that are very, very, very available. And that's so important in our practice that we let it be available to us. You know, because body is available. You can feel yourself sitting here. Mind is available. You can recognize what's going on. Therefore, relaxation is available. Waking up is available. Liberation is available. And some of the classical imagery in the Buddhist tradition, like the statues behind me, for example, some of the, the classical ways of speaking about Enlightenment, for example, they tend to have the opposite effect of making practice and liberation seem unavailable. There seems to be, you know, there's like this Tara statue, look at her, sublime and beautiful, perfectly poised, elegant hand gestures. It's like, and then there's me. <laughs> well, there's the Buddha statue that I can supremely equanimous, you know, all kinds of things happen. We have a a statue in the center where I live which is really falling to bits and the fingers have fallen off many times and been sort of stuck back on and now both feet have fallen off and one arm is gone and the nose is gone. He's still completely equanimous. The statue just sits there like totally impervious. In one way that's very inspiring. I really enjoy that the reflection of equanimity seen in that as the statue crumbles and he doesn't seem troubled by it. But on the other way, the statue can reinforce a sense of exoticism or unavailability or difference. And Buddha was a guy. Buddha was just somebody like us who was interested in his own heart and mind and body and life and world and was interested in the way he was interacting with things, and was interested to find that he got uptight, and he got contracted, and that he got fearful, and that he got confused, and was interested to, like, to be intimate with those contractions and confusions, and was interested to find out how they could relax and open up, and was interested enough to keep pursuing that moment by moment, not to some far-off goal, but interested enough to pursue it so that things kept on opening up, that he kept on waking up. And so that availability is such that our lives can really, really transform, not to lead us to some far-off place called something munt, but actually to, to lead us just closer in, more intimately in, to being here, in this life, in this 
messy and unsatisfactory body, in this messy and unsatisfactory mind, in this messy and unsatisfactory world. So, having looked at the title, I've been... I then thought, okay, so what, you know, there's so many avenues in, right? There's so many, because life is available, it's going on right now. So how, how to explore that? And so without going into the whole process behind it, basically the, the, the format, the way I'd like to explore today and tomorrow is mostly through looking at, a, again, a very classical teaching, but one can, which can seem unavailable or far off and hopefully in a very immediate way. So the, the thread through our two days are looking at the emptiness of self, the emptiness of the world, and the emptiness of time. And let's start off with the emptiness of emptiness before we go into that. Because when we talk about emptiness, you know, which again is one of these things like Buddha statues that can seem far off or uh, esoteric, etc. Emptiness isn't something. Sometimes people t- talk about the, a state of emptiness, right? But it, emptiness can't be a state. Emptiness can't be a, a, a thing to understand or a place to get to. In fact, emptiness is a little, uh, little disingenuous as a term. So if we're looking at the emptiness of self, we're not trying to negate self. Oh, these poor Buddhists, and maybe you and I both have been caught in the terrible trouble of trying to negate the self. Right, we start off with the terrible trouble, like everybody else, of trying to affirm the self. Right, trying to feel better about the self, trying to make the self feel secure, trying to have a, build a sense of self that I can finally feel okay about. <coughs> and we've noticed that that's a doomed project, maybe, and that nobody's ever managed to do it. Right? Nobody's ever managed to feel actually totally okay about themselves. Right? Because we start to notice self isn't a thing like that. It's not a thing at all. It's not a thing that can be perfected. And so then maybe we give up the, the self-security project. But then we shift into some other unhelpful project. Of, oh, well, no, there's nothing here called self. There is no self. Some other preposterous statement, I would say. The statement that there is a self is equally preposterous as the idea that there isn't a self. And in case you think I'm wandering too far from Buddhist orthodoxy, you know, the Buddha was asked very directly once, for goodness sake, man, tell me, is there a self or isn't there? And he refused to answer. So if we're talking about emptiness of self, that's not a convenient Buddhist way to just to, to push aside the very real sense of self that we have or the, the very real senses of selves that we have. And many senses of selves. And if I just think back over the last 24 hours... Many senses of selves arise, dependent on the role that I might be in, depending on the people I'm with, depending on whether it's a situation that's pleasant or unpleasant. Right. So you, even this morning, you may, have been, you may have kind of felt the sense of yourself as mother or lover or some other role that you inhabit in life. 
And you might have felt the sense of yourself arise as uh, the, an, the impatient one as you waited for the transport or whatever it might be. You might have had your sense of self kind of just formed momentarily as being the good meditator as you sat down. And, oh, yes, there we go. Or the bad meditator as you sat down and thought, oh, dear, other people have got some kind of nicer posture than me or whatever. You myriad senses of selves that arise. And when we try to negate the self, we again, we make our experience unavailable. So some exploration of the, of the emptiness of self is an encouragement for us to look and engage with, find out about, be close to, take care of. So really when I say emptiness of emptiness, it's to, you know, emptiness itself is, is empty. It's not, we're not going to find it. Oh, oh yes, um, here I am, this is emptiness. No. But it's a sort of guiding light through which we'll be looking at the sense of self and looking at our sense of the world and looking at our sense of time in order to, firstly, to let our experience be really available to ourselves and secondly, to engage, to wake up, to liberate our experience. And along the way, as, as we look at, you know, these basically the most familiar reference points of our life, right? The self, the world, and time. Pretty much everything that we construct is filtered those, through those three reference points. Time, space, and self, right? That's how uh, we have the sense of everything existing. Subject, object, and moving through time. So... My suggestion is, maybe that's not what's happening at all. Or at least, maybe that way of viewing it is useful for some things, but very partial. And that we might find a different, freer, more wakeful way of relating to what we call time and space and self and world, etc. And yet, at the same time, while, while using this sort of framework of the emptiness of phenomena... The other thread that I really want to be uh, central in our weekend together is the thread of love. Experience is available by loving what's happening. It doesn't mean you have to like it, right? There may be plenty that happens this week that you don't like. Even right now, because the guy's still talking and I just want to meditate, for example. But... The opportunity to love what's happening. What does that mean? If, it, if you don't have to like it in order to love it, it means to extend some care to one's experience, to extend some interest, to be willing to listen to the stuff of life. It's really to have a kind of respectful attitude respectful attitude which which we kind of which gets encouraged in an atmosphere like this we come to a dharma center there's a sort of feeling of care for one another respect for one another of a certain gentleness with one another it's one of the things we love about a sangha right? a feeling of a shared field of goodness and it's sort of tragic 
how we can we can feel that and we can express that around us and yet it all goes a little wrong when we start looking inwardly and then the respect goes and the fondness goes and the care goes and we get into a sort of harsh knot with ourselves a harsh knot of trying to have our meditation be a certain way or a harsh knot of berating ourselves for how unawake or how, how unliberated or how unenlightened uh, we find ourselves. So actually, even though we might use a language that points to sort of the wisdom aspect of teachings, emptiness of self, emptiness of world, the, the real engine of our practice is the engine of love. Well, what does that mean? So, I mean, just now, the fact of sitting here, what is it to love the fact of sitting here, to love the act of sitting here? What is it to just extend a certain warm, welcoming, allowing attention into the density of the sensations in your legs and the contact with the ground? To extend a certain... that warmth and care into just the, the miracle of, of basic bodily aliveness. Letting yourself actually really feel the, the, the sitting here. To let yourself love your current mind state. Whether it's a pleasant one, you're feeling bright, engaged, interested, or whether it's an unpleasant one, feeling Restless, tired, dull, uncomfortable. A willingness, in other words, to let your experience be available. To let heart and mind and body and world, just for this moment, to really let them be like this. The willingness to let your experience be here in awareness. That's love. And that's how we define love with others, right? Love, the willingness to let someone be as they are. Love, the willingness to be uh, uncomplaining, uncritical. So, those were some of my thoughts as I looked at the title. And um, let's see how we go on together. We'll make some time for meditation now. And I'm aware that you've been sitting for a while while I've been speaking. So we'll just take two or three minutes if you need to stretch your legs or use the bathroom before we sit in meditation. In some ways, I think meditation is what we turn to when we realize that there's no escape from our own minds. Generally, try almost anything else first. And then only when all else has failed, maybe meditation then.
My daughter went to uh, Africa a couple of summers ago to the Gabon to, um, as part of a film crew making a documentary. And uh, it was about, the documentary was about a hallucinogenic uh, plant called Iboga, which uh, is used particularly in the Gabon. And uh, as, as, course, as part of the documentary making, I think she, well, participant observation and uh, all of that. And, of course, she's grown up in a Dharma center where I live and where she grew up. And a uh, certain kind of uh, recognition of the value of meditation practice, and yet also firmly engaging the, the intention to turn to anything else except for that. And partly, of course, growing up, meditation was that thing that mum and dad do. But when she came back from the, the trip to Gabon, and uh, in speaking about it, she said, what I really realized, through the whole experience, actually, was, which was quite intense for her in all kinds of different ways, but uh, particularly in terms of the experience with the iboga, she said, what I really realized is, I need to train my mind. Wow, that was a worthwhile trip. But we don't really want to train our minds, you know. At least I speak for myself. I could see how I just, you know, I just want my mind to stop being so troublesome. And we tried ways to, you know, we try all kinds of ways of going unconscious to stop it being troublesome. We persist in some way that there should be a way, there must be a way to organize my life or organize my experience, or organize my relationships, or organize my mind in a way that it stopped being troublesome. But mind is troublesome by its nature. Why is it troublesome? Because it keeps on producing ideas of self and world and time. Right? So it traps us in that sense of how life is. I'm a self thrashing my way through a life with a, a time that sometimes seems to go too slowly, sometimes seems to go too quickly, etc., etc. And so then I think, you know, the practice of meditation, which is a little how I was describing it during the sit there, becomes one of being increasingly willing not to, to give up trying to get away from our minds. It's a, it's a terrible friction trying to escape from one's own mind when it's kind of fundamentally impossible. So we rather start to befriend our own mind, hang out in our own mind, with our own mind. Let our, our mind's productions, like I was just saying, let them be available to us. But of course, because the habit and the hope of trying to get away from one's own mind is so strong, we often bring that to meditation practice. And of course, the classic old chestnut that, of course, none of you are deluded by, but the idea that people, when they first come to meditation, have some idea that they're going to get rid of all thought, that they're going to get into some sort of blank bliss. In other words, I'll find some way to stop my mind troubling me. And of course, there are moments in meditation practice where, as we were hearing earlier about a certain quietness, there are moments where mind, because we're not feeding its, uh, our obsession with it so much, where mind becomes rather 
silent, rather spacious, rather cooperative. Marvellous, those occasional moments when one has a cooperative mind. And yet, if we pursue the practice of meditation just hoping for a pleasant mind or a quiet mind, we'll be very disappointed and frustrated by all the, t- the times when mind isn't quiet or cooperative. And yet, like, we, like I said and like I heard also from many of you earlier, we're interested in waking up. We're interested in freeness. A freeness that's free regardless of how mind is, regardless of mind, whether mind's being troublesome, regardless of the flickering of the various thoughts and images that keep on going, because that's a mind's job. Mind's job is to think, imagine, conceive, remember, plan. And there's certainly nothing wrong with those things. In fact, they're really great human tools. And again, we, some, because there's a, we get into a troublesome relationship with that, we get into another weird view of meditation, which is something to do where we take some idea of being present, of being in the here and now, and do a sort of weird twist with it, where we imagine we're just supposed to kind of be in some kind of preternatural here and now. And that any idea of the thought, oh, I mustn't plan, or, uh, we talk about, oh, mind goes to the future, mind goes to the past, it's just got to stay in the present moment. Rubbish. Present moment can be just as troublesome as past or future. <laughs> you know? There's nothing special about uh, present moment. Mind can be all kinds of troublesome about the future, right? Anxiety, anxiety, worrying about the future, or, oh, fantasy, fantasy, hoping for a nice future. Mind can be all kinds of troublesome about the past, right? oh, regret, blame, etc., or all kinds of troublesome, oh, just getting lost in some nostalgic, oh, wasn't it lovely, wasn't it lovely before Trump was elected, <laughs> etc. But, but mind can be all kinds of troublesome in the present as well. Right? Just constantly narrating, describing, interpreting. We can be just as cut off from a free relationship with life by mind turning around the present moment as we can around mind turning around the future or turning around the past. So again, in terms of what we've been looking at, befriending, making available, allowing, not making a tyranny out of our experience and the way our experience should be, the way our meditation should be, the way I should be. And letting that be a thread. Now, that's a part of the thread of love that we spoke about earlier. Letting that be a thread that runs through our days. There is no wrong experience. There is no thought you shouldn't have which is profoundly good news, given the kinds of thoughts we find ourselves having from time to time. Often I spend time with meditators, you know, trying to normalize for them, for them the craziness of their minds, the fact that they have kind of some kind of revenge fantasy playing out. You know, I'm sitting, trying to be serene, the person next to me is shuffling, and I have some thought of... <laughs> it's like, that's okay. Right? There's, a, you know, there's, there's plenty of unskillful ways of acting out our inner life. 
but there's no wrong experience. There's no thought we shouldn't have. There's no mind state we shouldn't have. And in fact, it's the more we try to repress, get rid of, not have, make wrong whole areas of our experience, the more they become these kind of twisted monsters for us. So letting it be available, letting it be welcome, letting it be allowed so that it can come and go, so that it can pass through, so that it can be this flickering, empty, luminous display which is what it all is, whether it's the stars shining in the sky or the sensations twinkling in the body or thoughts flickering in the mind. So that we can include and relate to this glittering, fleeting, brief, luminous display that we call experience or that we tend to call my life. And then we get into the stuff of self and the dramatizing it all and my life and my issues and my relationships and my worries and my history and my family and dramatizing the display. So, I'll make a little time for some walking just to maintain these threads. Thread of letting it, your experience be available. A thread of general kind of warm, inclusive relationship to what's happening. And a thread of not taking it so personally or seriously. You know, it may have been a thought or a, a sensation or a moment in this previous meditation that you've really got sort of some friction around it. Where's it gone now? Gone. Nothing lasts very long. No mind state, no bodily sensation, nothing that you'll experience over the course of today will last very long. So, we'll have a short walking period that won't last very long. Uh, And you can walk in this room, you can walk in the other room there, you can walk at home, those of you who are here on the live stream, And if you're on the live stream, of course, all the familiar stuff is there. And already the tendency here is to do other stuff in the walking period. We gravitate to the kettle or the notice board or something. And at home, you've got tons of things you can gravitate to. And I'm not watching, right? So I don't mind mind what you do. But just to see if if your intention is to really follow the thread of the days, just to see if you can walk with a certain gentle discipline of allowing the impulses, including the tendency to, to, oh, let's just go and obsess over the notice board, if you're here, or the tendency to go and just, you know, be pulled into something that's around you at home. Let the walking express a spirit of the certain naturalness that we've been evoking, natural experience, natural bodily sensations, natural walking. Body knows how to walk, just let it walk. You don't have to reinvent walking. You know what I mean when you see people doing walking meditation in some kind of overly contrived fashion? Just walk. Walk gently. And because you're not trying to go anywhere, there may be a natural just a slowing down. Fine if that happens, but again, no need to contrive a particular slowness. You're walking 
as an opportunity to let your experience be available to you. Walking as an opportunity to just engage with the profound mysteriousness that body just knows how to do its thing. Breath knows how to breathe. Legs know how to walk. And this availability that we make of experience to awareness actually can very, very powerfully over time let us kind of trust the basicness of being here. We trust body to be body. We trust mind to be mind. We trust the world to be the world increasingly. So, um, walk for about 20 minutes or so and I'll ring the bell and then we'll come back and just have a quiet, some quiet sitting time together and then a little chance to see what's going on and to digest and explore experience together. So we'll just have half an hour of uh, quiet sitting together. But before we start, I just want to check if anybody, if there's anything I've said in terms of the meditation instructions that are confusing or unclear or different enough than the normal way you practice so as you're not sure how to engage. And so feel free. Yeah, Caitlin, is it? Uh, That would be good to use the mic, yeah. Caitlin here. Thank you. Um, so <clears throat> I'm wondering about um, the instruction to allow the mind to go where it will go. Because often I find when I, and I use this word with caution, indulge the mind to go where it will go, mm-hmm. then I'm not available to the present moment. So sometimes it's a reminder of myself not to do that because that's not what my intention is for the moment. So if you could clarify that, yeah. I'd appreciate it. So there's a difference, which I think you're underlining in a way, between letting the mind do what it's doing and indulging in that doing of it. So I would say, let the mind go where it goes, do what it does, but don't go with it. Or having recognized that you've gone with it, just re-establishing and re-establishing and re-establishing. And so you're, you're re-establishing yourself in presence regardless of the state of your body, the state of your mind, the state of your thought, the state of the world. It's not uh, an uncaring. It's not like, oh, I don't care about how this is and I don't care. No, there's actually a lot of care. You can do care, but don't mind. (laughs) It's like, because we realize, I don't really get to control how the world is right now. I don't get to control 
which sounds arise and, and don't. I don't get really control how comfortable body is or isn't. Right? I don't get to control the kinds of thoughts that arise or don't arise. So it's like, and yet I can establish a certain poise, a certain presence, a certain welcome, a certain allowing, a certain ease, a certain groundedness, a certain spaciousness, regardless of the way body, heart, mind, and world are. And from that certain poise, ease, uh, welcome, etc., you start to find a kind of the fluidity to actually engage wisely, freely, kindly, skillfully, flexibly with body, heart, mind, and world. So in the microcosm of meditation, it's like I think of meditation often as putting our normal experience under the microscope of awareness. When we sit here, really we're just seeing the noise. It's not any different being here than being anywhere else in the world, fundamentally. Being in a Dharma setting or being in the streets of New York, being at home or being with oneself or being with others, being in meditation or being in some activity. All we're doing is it's the same kind of thought patterns that happen. It's the same kind of relationship to the world. It's the same kind of tendency to get resistant or get blamey or get full of ideas or get carried away or whatever it is that we do. So you're letting just that be under the microscope. And rather than trying, as we often do at the beginning, to, to control mind, to stop it thinking, or to make it stay, we have some idea that to be present would involve no thoughts of elsewhere arising, right? no future or past, for example, like we were saying earlier. Oh dear, that's a hard way to meditate. So I'm inviting you to the path of great ease. Let mind be as it is. Let body be as it is. Let world be as it is. You don't need to fix your experience. And present in the midst of. Available in the midst of. Contactful in the midst of. Welcoming in the midst of. Curious in the midst of. Whatever, however, experience is presenting. So with that, let's sit. Establishing and re-establishing yourself in presence embodied attention right here cultivating an attention that's welcoming contactful one that lets experience come and go One that recognizes there's no wrong experience. Just 
cultivating a practice that's not trying to attain some privileged state, but rather one that's interested in this state. opportunity before lunchtime just to explore whatever's standing out to you in your practice that may be in the form of questions you have or comments or reflections or explorations on things I've said this morning it's also an opportunity for me to really hear and from us to hear from each other what like show me your mind what's going on there yeah Kyle just wait for the mic. Well, um, this is going back a ways, but uh, I once did a retreat with you at Gaia House, and it was Ivor, actually, who um, thanked you for once saying that comfort is overrated. Mm. I wasn't there when you said that, so I was wondering what you meant by that, if you remember even saying that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, I was just reflecting on that recently, how um, discomfort has a a certain challenge to it. And I was thinking back to the early years of my practice, where I I practiced in a lot of discomfort uh, in many ways. A lot of material discomfort. You know, I really, I didn't have any money. I was, uh, I didn't have adequate clothing for the living in the mountains. I was very often cold, very often. So there was a lot of physical discomfort. Also, long periods of meditation tends to be quite physically uncomfortable. There's a lot of existential discomfort. Oh my God! <laughs> you know, I was 19 when I started. I was really consumed. By like, what the hell am I doing with my life, and what the hell is life anyway, and what does it mean to be conscious? And so, a lot of discomfort, and uh, etc. So, discomfort has a certain challenge to it, but comfort has a much greater challenge to it because we tend to go comfortably numb in those immortal words of Pink Floyd. And when, when, it's when things are easy, when we're comfortable, whether, whatever kind of comfort that is, when we're materially comfortable, when, uh, when you have the things, it's easy to get a certain a kind of interior smugness about comfort. And uh, it's easy for the kind of the aliveness of one's practice to recede in some way. I think it was the sixth Zen patriarch who, whose advice to the monks was, your poverty is your greatest treasure. Never exchange it for an easy life. 
And as my own life has become more comfortable, I have a lot of cause to reflect on that. And to, to see how, just to see the tendency, how comfort is incredibly seductive. And nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to speak against in quite such strong terms as the, as the sixth patriarch was. And of course, it's different leading a lay life than a monastic life. The life of my early years of practice was, was much more monastic in style, you know, and it was mostly spent in hermitages and, and monasteries, etc. But it, we can, a lot of what we're doing, moment by moment, if we're honest with ourselves, is we're seeking comfort. And I, I, earlier on this morning, I called that we're trying to get away from our own minds. And turning to meditation is when we realize that's not possible. You know? And even though we'd like to be comfortable in meditation, we pretty quickly realize that a meditation is a lot. We learn a lot in meditation from how we're able to be with discomfort. So our discomfort teaches us so much. Like, how can I be gentle with physical pain? How can I be kind of accommodating of my own neuroses? How can I be, like, be, be skillful with the general the unsatisfactory nature of being human? Not our relationships are unsatisfactory. Our, uh, our world is unsatisfactory. Our politics are unsatisfactory. Our, uh, our environment in all kinds of different manifestations of that are unsatisfactory. And the way we show up to ourselves and others is often unsatisfactory. So in very many ways... Dharma practice is a kind of a, a right up close engagement with the uncomfortable and the unsatisfactory. And we don't, we don't want to hear it that way. We want to, we want to hear about Nibbana or something and some kind of you know, lifting off out of uh, discomfort in a way. Right, but would you advise actively seeking out discomfort though? It depends on what kind of, uh, how, how, gung-ho one wants to be about one's practice and um, generally enough of it tends to come our way right? that we don't need to seek it out so much and interestingly enough whatever kind of comfort we strive to establish and manage to establish it doesn't do much to assuage the uncomfortable emotions or the uncomfortable moments uh, that come our way so it's not so much, when I say comfort's overrated, it's not so much an injunction to go out and seek discomfort. It's more the, the, the encouragement, because it's so uh, liberating, to be interested in discomfort. Because the, 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 the reflex tendency is to just try to um, switch it out quickly to be more comfortable. And so you know, comfort easily becomes a way of, of going to sleep. And we've involved all kinds of magnificent mechanisms for doing away with a lot of discomfort. And it's not that I have anything to criticize about those, but I definitely, I notice for myself that comfort can be the enemy of my practice. So, where does that leave you with whatever the thought process was behind asking the question? It it was just... um... I was just remembering that moment. I was like, I was never there when Martin said that, and I wonder what he meant by uh-huh. that. And I, you know, it wasn't it wasn't anything that was um, particularly at odds with my practice. But I just it was just a message that just c- kept coming through, and I'm like, I wasn't there to hear it in context, right. so just uh-huh. wanted to hear it. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
And it's not, when I speak like that, it's not, uh, you know, I think particularly in the Theravadan tradition where insight meditation comes from, there can be, there's a sort of, there can be a kind of anti, not just anti-comfort, but well, anti, anti-beauty, anti-aesthetics. You know, in the Zen tradition, those of you who have the good fortune to be Zen practitioners, it's so beautiful. Right? There's so much beauty in Zen. You've got poetry and ikibana and gravel raking and all kinds of like beautiful things to do. And I'm a secret wannabe Zen practitioner because right? I like beauty. But I found myself, unfortunately, in Theravadan tradition where there's not much beauty. And, you know, robes are brown for the, for the monastics, right? Zen robes are so, you know, don't you get robe envy when you see Zen practitioners? I do. And there, there can be a feeling, and sometimes it permeates, not so much here, because this is a very beautiful space, actually. And just when we were setting up the camera this morning, and uh, Jake was, had the frame on her laptop, and it's like, oh, it's so beautiful. And you've got the contrast of the white window and the brick, which then serve as this beautiful contrasting backdrop for the Tara and the Buddha. And you know, it's, a very, it's, a, it's kind of a light, beautiful, cared-for space here. But often in the general insight meditation world, there can what might start off as something I was speaking about there, about a kind of willingness to be uncomfortable, can end up being a little uh, dry and uh, rejecting of beauty. So um, that place, for example, where I said that comment, which you were, you were just referred to, I'm always struck by how all the, all the mugs are chipped there, and all the plates are chipped, and there's some sort of it's some sort of making a virtue out of simplicity. As if, oh, we're so renunciate here that we drink out of cracked cups. But I don't, I'm not sure that's so great, you know. I like, beauty draws awareness. So when we see the kind of, when I was struck by the, the, this kind of beautiful way the shrines are uh, arranged, and then the beauty of the um, orchids in the middle, or if you, if you drink tea from some beautiful Japanese porcelain cup, it draws all the qualities that we're interested in meditation, it draws appreciation. It draws a, a kind of intimacy. It draws attention from us. Beautiful. So, so when I <coughs> speak about the value of abiding with the uncomfortable, there's also, I think that can go too far into this sort of what can look and feel and sometimes is a sort of life-denying uh, or uh, aesthetic-denying approach. But at the same time, you know, it's different to drink tea from a beautiful cup than the cracked cups in those in that meditation center. They can replace those cups though, right? Right. They can replace those cups. I wish they nice would. Ones. I yeah. wish they would. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's not like against the rules. Right. <laughs> yeah, Becky and then uh friend here. Okay. Anyway round. Yeah. What's your name? Tom. Tom, yeah. This is totally um, me. Uh, I notice that you're holding a uh, skull mala. Mm. Could you comment on the use of uh, uh, those uh, aids in death practice? I'm very interested in hearing something authoritative about that practice. If you could do that sometime today. Okay. And so I'd be interested in hearing about it. Okay. So 
You might, I'll, I will try to say something about it today, and maybe you'll need to remind me. Yeah. And let's leave it for the afternoon time, where I'm happy right. to open the focus of our explorations much, much wider. Right. Right. And for now, I'd, most, I'd, I'd mostly like to, to keep the thread of it as sort of exploration of what's happening for you in your practice this morning. Right. It's just that I've been very much interested in hearing some kind of authoritative instruction on that yeah. practice. And okay. Not, I'm not it's sure. Hard I'd to, be it's hard to come by. Yeah. And I'm not sure I'd be able to offer you that. I just I use malas in a kind of fetishistic way, yeah. really. Yeah. It's like Buddhist fetish objects, you know. Yeah. I've got my. Uh... So I don't. I, I don't use it, and I li- I very much like the imagery of the skull and the way it's the reminder of the precious and fleeting and fragile nature of this life, which uh, will endure for I don't know how long. And in teaching particularly, there's a lot going on, right? There's a lot going on. There's a certain reflective quality of uh, how to articulate what seems important to say, a certain reading of the room and what seems to be going on for people. So sitting and meditating is different than, than teaching. And so because of what a lot's going on in teaching, it, seems, it sort of produces a certain kind of uh, activation in the body. And having, having something in the hands, it's sort of like, uh, an, like the earthing, the earth in an electricity circuit or like a, the lightning rod on a church. It sort of provides somewhere for, the, for that to go. So I'm afraid it's not that I'm doing some kind of profound uh, death practice, other than the fact that staying cognizant of the fragility of life is itself a profound death practice. Well, I can't remember who wrote this, but... Um... Uh, the passage goes, <clears throat> we are given birth to stride an open grave, a flicker of light, and it's darkness once more. Right. So it sounds like both through that and what you said earlier, you're being, you're being struck yourself by the fleeting uh, and uncertain nature of life and the impending proximity of death. Well, I was present when my father suddenly died, mm-hmm. so it's it's personal. Yeah. yeah. I do want to say that, um, if I'm not hogging a microphone, I do like to say that uh, my practice today especially is um, just being with the way my mind is without getting caught up in it. Uh, I call it being involved without getting involved. Mm-hmm. And you... Uh, I find that when I'm like without thought, that's when I fall asleep. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, the, this this idea of, of, of longing for a, a state without thinking. In my experience, that's when I fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So how's that? Um. Sounds okay to me. I mean, if tiredness is there, sleep will come. If there's nothing else in the way, often tiredness is there, but sleep doesn't come because you're busy in the loop of thought. Right. So if you're not busy in the loop and tiredness is there, sleep will come. If tiredness is not there, then probably sleep won't. And meanwhile, what you're saying, rather than striving for any particular state, thoughtless state or other state, 
that what you're calling being involved, being close to, being intimate with, being curious about, being welcoming of experience without getting involved, without adding layers of identification and reactivity. Spinning right? a story. Spinning a story. Without spinning a story, yeah. Hi. Um, I would love to hear more about emptiness of time. Tomorrow. <laughs> it's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> Just behind you. Um, maybe this could be later. It's uh, when uh, Kyle raised the question about comfort versus discomfort. Uh, in my meditation was struggling with the um, where I'm part of the Echo Sangha here that's about environmental issues and this the Echo Sava vow that's about inviting discomfort mm-hmm. um, to kind of awaken to our um, living more conscious, environmentally more conscious and I'm kind of struggling with that. So maybe that it's later on in the, the world part more up to that. Yeah. Um, in my practice, what I found lately, recently, has become much more mind-body integrated than I have been ever. And so I often felt there's energy that want to move through me in meditation. And my impulse is kind of to help it move through, mm-hmm. and meaning like sometimes it's a gesture of offering, prayer, mm-hmm. Sometimes is shaking, sometimes is putting hands in heart and different places that needs relief. And but I kind of aware in this tradition that you kind of want to be stable and steady. And so um, my general attitude is very forgiving and just like go wherever you really need to go. But then on the other hand, the part of me feel like should I really just kind of there's a mala maybe there is should be an anchor that make less yeah I'm not I don't think there's a right way to do that so I would just encourage you to experiment with both both means letting the that moving energy have some expression right it's very common that there's something we're creating a certain steadiness and receptivity to our experience that all kinds of things that may have gotten you know locked up over decades, start to move. And that can move as shaking, it can move as heat, it can move as sort of a dysmorphic sense of our scale, feeling like enormous, or feeling tiny, or feeling very, very light, or feeling very, very dense, etc., etc. And the main thing is that it's nothing to be worried about, and it's nothing special either. It's just, it's just the phenomenology of meditation, if you like. So letting it happen. And you'll find by experimentation, maybe, that the, the, some movement or gesture or expression is helpful and you also might find by that experimenting that a certain just relaxing into it and letting the heat or letting the shaking happen without trying to do anything to facilitate it might also be helpful. You know Jack Cornfield when he was in the monastery in Thailand his name was Chicken Man his nickname because he had this uh, for a while, right, just spontaneously, you know, sometimes there's this kind of spasmic 
response that happens as, as sort of energetic stuff unwinds. And the other monks used to tease him because his arms kept going like that spontaneously. So they'd call him the chicken. It's like that. It's very spontaneous. It's not trying to facilitate right. it. Yeah. So you're in good company. You're chicken woman. Thank you. Please. I'm gonna, I want to share something about the practice that we just did, in, particularly in walking meditation. Um, What's you know, your name? Just tell oh, me your name. sorry, Merrily. Merrily. Yeah. Um, you know, I had in mind your words about um, allowing the experience to be accessible, um, uh, available. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I've been... I was walking with a fair amount of discomfort because um, I'm recovering from a broken ankle. And, Mm. of course, that ankle is not walking in the same way that the other one is. And um, I felt very stuck in that experience of it being off while I was walking. And it did... I, it doesn't didn't feel accessible to that experience actually, and what I realized is that I had the thought attached to that experience that the walking is off or the ankle is off, right. and I don't I don't really think see I think I ever saw it quite that way, and that it was keeping the experience from being actually accessible exactly. in an easy way. That's the thing of no wrong experience. Yeah. As soon as we have the, the sense that this experience shouldn't be happening or shouldn't be like this, then it can't be accessible to awareness. And, so we, and then it doesn't matter what layer is already put on top of experience. So it may be that we're just the discomfort in the ankle. Well, let that be available. But it may be that I really don't like it and I can see there's resistance to it. And say, well, I can't. How can I make it available? Because I don't like it and I'm resisting it. Okay, so let the resistance be available to experience. Whatever layer you're at, whether it's just the sensation or whether it's the reaction to the sensation or whether it's the idea about the reaction to the sensation or it's whether it's the self-judgment about the fact that you've got so many ideas about the resistance to the... It doesn't matter. The layer, the layer that... And we tend to look past the layer we're at to the experience beyond that and think, oh, that ought to be accessible. I ought to be mindful of that. And so often it's just to come back and, how, how am I right now? Oh, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm impatient. Okay, that's accessible. I- experience is accessible to awareness. It's just that we tend to be looking through the layer that we're most identified with and trying to make the thing beyond that accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, so uncoupling the, those two things... Is very helpful. The right. thought, you know, seeing the thought was a new, seeing yeah. that it was so attached to the experience that I didn't even actually really see it. Right. That that made both the thought and the and the physical experience more accessible and also easier, and more ease. Right, and more ease. Yeah. More ease is the fruit of that seeing. Yeah. Right. So I saw that. Yeah, beautiful. And yeah. So there you go. There's the whole of Dharma practice right there. Right. Noticing that something seems to be off. 
being curious about it rather than rejecting it for being off. Seeing how the process works and how we're fabricating a, a friction with life that doesn't need to be there. And through that seeing, knowing a kind of ease. Even though the basic experience is still the same. Ankle has been, had an accident, still uncomfortable. Walking feels a little off. But the problem's gone out of it. Yep. Yeah. Hi. Hi. My name is Judith. Judith. Um, when the light comes through or the energy or whatever it is, <clears throat> I've experienced the swelling up, the light, the movement. Sometimes I'll shake. But I have noticed that maybe this thing, this knowingness... Can, can you hold the mic a little more like that? I'll okay. hear you better, yeah. Um, has some sort of intelligence or a knowingness because when I'm at home, I vocalize. I have voices that come out. Some of them are similar to the natives or indigenous people. Sometimes they'll sound like animals, and I just let it go. Um, most of the time, it will happen in the one bedroom that I have my altar, and I meditate. And that's the bedroom even my dog knows. Mm. She has to meditate in. When I'm on a long retreat, it doesn't happen in the group it's sort of like nose not to come out. And I'm just, there's no effort on my part. So mm. I'm wondering if it has some sort of intelligence of what is correct and what is not correct. Well, in, in other yeah. words, coming out because I don't want to scare anybody. Sure. I'm not quite sure what you mean about correct, given that the sounds that come out sound like they're, 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 they all they're sorts not co- of. Yeah, they're sounds all, rather than words. Yeah, so and some know. of them do have context of a different language. So does the context seem useful to you? Does the context or the feeling or the intelligence behind the words or sounds or context <coughs> give you some clarity or some? Uh, or is it useful in some way? Oh, yeah, it's like I'm making hmm. contact with something that's within my soul. It's just... And what's the, what's the effect of that? You're making contact with something in your soul? What's the it's, useful it's, effect it's, of that? Um, it's like... Hold the, hold the mic like an ice cream cone. It's familiar to me, except for one time. But um, what's useful? It. I think it's the release of it. It's there's a the, sense the, of relief. This, this connection mm-hmm. to me, it's like, okay, you're there, you know. Okay, so if it seems useful, yeah, in whatever way, there's some release. You say there's some sense of connection. Good. I don't under. I don't think there's any need for. Is it correct? I would put aside why it comes, where it comes from, and what it means. Or when. 
or yeah. Okay. And leave that all that alone. The fact is, something happens sometimes in a meditative context or setting right. that feels like it helps with a sense of connection, relief, that it's useful, good. That's all you need to know about it. Okay. You could spend a lot of wasteful mental energy wondering about what it is, where it comes from, what it means, trying to find a belief system to, to structure it and fit it no. into. All unnecessary. Right. I would say... Let it be mysterious. Plenty of things in life are mysterious. And we do better to accommodate the mysteriousness of them than try to understand what and why and where and how they work. Okay. But thank you for allowing me to bring it up because I've never... Welcome. I've always wondered, but I never had the guts to bring it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome. Hello, my name is Carol. Carol, hi. I've been experiencing a lot of drowsiness this morning, mm. as I often do, uh, on retreat. And it seems to be the antithesis of awakening mm. and being awake and my aspiration to awaken. Mm. And um, unlike many, many other kinds of uncomfortable experiences, this is very hard to get access to it just by the very nature of drowsiness and sleepiness. Can yeah. you talk a little bit, bit about that? Just briefly, three things you can do. Firstly, do what it takes to kind of compensate for the drowsiness. So stand up. right? And they, it's worth spending a little time on because you weren't the only one sitting in this marvelous <laughs> swaying motion this morning. So stand up or, or raise your hands above. Often I find you sit like this. It can really help with the drowsiness. So there's one thing you can do to counteract the effects of the drowsiness. Second thing you can do is, and uh, depends how much steadiness there is, but the fact that you're able to recognize you're drowsy, how come? If you're so drowsy, how do you know you're drowsy? Or what knows you're drowsy? I, I, I think it is that motion of the body that, momentarily wakes me up a little bit mm. and then I I realize that I've been gone gone, yeah, that's what drowsiness is goneness yeah. right? you've kind of fallen into the soup of foggy mind and yet there is actually some awareness that endures over there, some sense of the passage of time, some sense of that when we wake up we have some sense of the, of the goneness so even though we've been gone, there's some capacity for recognition has endured even through the goneness. So recognizing that sometimes allows us to notice that however dull mind is, the knowing of the dullness isn't itself dull. And there's a way in which, in that knowing, that one can actually stay contactful and curious about the state of dullness. So that's second thing, which may or may not uh, work for you. Third thing is, relax, enjoy, take a nap. <laughs> really. Just, I've had some great naps. Oh, meditation. Oh. But really, relax and nap. And strangely enough, you might find that if you really let yourself actually really give yourself to it, to it, to the relaxation that's in it, to the kind of the fuzzy fade of consciousness, which we quite love, actually. If 
you really give yourself to it, very quickly the state changes. Because often what we're doing is we're half giving ourselves to it and then half we keep sort of, uh, uh, slightly kind of, we're creating some friction with it where we keep half trying to snap out of it, except there's not enough oomph to consciousness to actually snap out of it. And so that's why this is happening. We snap out of it for like a, not even a second. I'm going to get... Uh, so you might, that's the third thing you might try, is just really letting it surrender to the soup and see what happens. Can you take a nap in a seated position? Find out. <laughs> okay. So, oh yeah, so one more, and then we'll uh, stop for lunch. Guillaume? Hi, my name is Guillaume. Oh. Um... I just wanted to share uh, a lot of joy uh, this morning um, that came out of um, just forgetting that it's always accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, especially during the walking meditation, because the, um, the sitting was, was okay, but it was really busy somehow, and I was okay with it, but you know, joy is hardly accessible in this. And uh, the walking, though, was really helpful and what was funny is that um i was just walking sort of somewhat freely around the space and you said you know walk around this floor and can go in the corridor and stuff and i was just like what if i go to the second floor and i mean uh, the floor above and i was just and i felt the same way uh so i was just oh that's amazing it's always here it's just like and this sense immediate space of expansion mm-hmm. and um and even greater joy so mm-hmm. just out of walking up the stairs so <laughs> It was fun. Nice. Thank you. Enjoy. 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 Okay, so we'll we'll take some time for lunch. I guess Kathy's going to say some practical stuff about that. Just to say from my side, so it's 10 to 1 now. I live in France. So we're not going to do one of these New York half-hour lunches. We're going to have time for lunch. So... Uh, and also, so that gives you the time. Some of you may have brought lunch and you may want to stay quiet, and in which case we can keep this space uh, quiet for quiet eating if you want, but also for resting. So it uh, maybe that you stay here, maybe that you go out for lunch, maybe that you go with others for lunch. Uh, I don't have any idea that you should stay silent through the lunchtime. I like the fact that you can get to know other people or get to hang out with Sangha friends that you may already know here. But if you want to nap afterwards, so we'll keep this space quiet so that you can come back and lie down. And often, you know, the sleepiness that some of you may have felt in the morning, often in a period of practice like this, the level of stimulation in the day is way lower than the other days of a New York week, right? And so when we're used to often having being kind of stimulated in a certain way, and when the stimulation level goes down, oh, we might feel a certain accumulated fatigue of the rest of life. So um, please feel free to take advantage of the reclining posture and uh, to take a nap. And then I'll ring the bell at about quarter past two. So that's a little less than an hour and a half for lunch, which is plenty of time to... Uh, eat here or go out and get what you need and then to build in some restful uh, time as well if you like so um, thank you, see you later enjoy your lunch
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.